In the name of the Holy Trinity, one God. Amen. In May of 2007, the town of Greensburg, Kansas, was destroyed by a two-mile-wide F5 tornado. The tornado was so horrible in that, to that uh, little town that it destroyed 90 to 95 percent of the structures, and 12 people died as a result. But something very interesting happened in that town. The week following that devastation, Mayor Lonnie McAllen announced that Greensburg would be rebuilt, and it would be rebuilt green. And they were serious about that. They got a lot of help from federal government and state uh, agencies, from gifts from people all over the country, and, and I think even all over the world, and some private nonprofit organizations as well. And as a result of that, they've been able to do really a miracle on the plane by creating this wonderful green town. LEED, you may have heard that term, L-E-E-D. It stands for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. And it establishes standards for assessing the sustainability of construction. Well, Greensburg has more LEED Platinum, which is the highest standard, more LEED Platinum buildings than per capita and per square foot than any other place in the United States. Their school, their city hall, their hospital, uh, an art center, and a townhome development all are expected to, be, to uh, eventually be lead platinum. In addition to that, they're establishing a wind farm that's going to have 10 turbines which will supply energy for 10,000 homes. Now, I'm sure when, the, when that disaster hit Greensburg, the people there thought that their world had ended, that there was nothing for them to look forward to in this world. If you can imagine living in a town that you loved and cared for for so many years and everything essentially gone. But what wasn't gone, what could not be destroyed, was the spirit of Greensburg. And even though bricks and mortar had been destroyed, the spirit of the town had not. And they were able to imagine something even more wonderful than they had had before. And from it has come a great example for people in the United States and literally across the world to see what people can do when they decide to do it. The spirit of Greensburg, I think, is seeing that something wonderful can come from the rubble of our lives. Now, we just heard a very difficult reading from the Gospel of Luke. And those of you who are kind of in tune with the liturgical year know that we're coming to the end of that. And with that come a lot of readings about the end of times. And certainly this kind of fits into that genre. It happens in this particular uh, pericope that Jesus is standing in the courtyards of the temple. And one can imagine that he was probably people watching because after all, he was a person of the country. And there he was in this uh, center of the universe for anyone who was a Jew. And he was standing in the courtyard, and just before this, we hear that he noticed the woman, the widow, putting the widow's mite in the offering plate. And then he overhears some people talking in amazement about the beauty of the temple. And Jesus then says this, As for these things that you see, the day will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. You can imagine that they thought this person is either crazy or 
he must know something that we don't, because this is a huge, gigantic building. How could it ever be brought down? The temple was one of the grandest buildings of the ancient world. Some ancient authorities said that whoever has not seen Herod's temple has never seen a beautiful building. The stones that form the foundation weigh 500 tons. And they were put down on bedrock. And I think those of you who've been there and know the Western Wall, I believe that that uh, bedrock is 60 feet below where you stand uh, looking at the Western Wall. Those 500 ton uh, stones would dwarf uh, the stones that you find at Stonehenge. And the beauty of the temple was extraordinary. The cloisters had columns that were cut from a single stone, 40 feet high, each of them. And then the ornaments that uh, went around that temple, there was a great vine that was made of solid gold. And the grape clusters that hung from that vine were as large as a person. Josephus, writing in the Wars of the Jews, said that when you face that temple, it was so bright you could hardly look at it when the sun came up in the morning because the doors had gold, gold plates on the front of the doors. He said that it irradiated so fiery a flash that persons standing to look at it were were compelled to avert their eyes as from the solar rays. And he said that there was so much white marble on that building that the temple appeared to strangers when they were at a distance like a mountain covered with snow. This was an amazing building. And Jesus said, someday not one stone will be left on another. All would be brought down. The people who received this gospel, I think, must have had a much different perspective than those who might have heard Jesus hearing, uh, hearing, saying those words in the first place. Because the people receiving the gospel were toward the end of that first century. And Jerusalem had already fallen and the temple had indeed been brought down. It was the war against the Roman oppressors that started in 66 of the Common Era. And halfway through that war, Jerusalem was utterly destroyed. Israel finally was defeated in that heroic stand that they took at Masada in 74 CE. And then a pagan temple was eventually put up on the Temple Mount and foreign rulers governed that city. And it continued even under a different name for a period of time. And then finally, in 1947, Jews returned to Jerusalem. I think it's important for us to note that while the temple was destroyed and Jerusalem was destroyed, the Jews were not. They had a spirit that allowed them to continue on. And I think it could even be said that the destruction of the temple opened up for them possibilities of spirituality that they had not considered before. Because one of the issues that Jesus raises in his ministry is how the temple had become oppressive with all of its rules and the way that it it controlled the people. And, of course, the allegiance of the officials of the temple with uh, the Romans. So, in a way, the destruction of the temple freed, I think, the Jews to continue to live into that covenant with God, to study Torah, to observe Sabbath, and to observe all of the law and the prophets. The early Christians who received this gospel were also being challenged. They were also living in a time when they were suffering persecution 
and when they must have wondered if there was any hope. They lived in expectation that Jesus was going to return and establish everything new again. But some of them had become uh, frustrated by the fact that nothing had happened. Jesus had not come. And in fact, we today still live with the expectation that one day Jesus will return. If you listen to the Eucharistic prayer, you'll hear us praying that one day he shall return and all shall be made new. The entire cosmos shall be transformed. But patience was required and endurance was required. Because even though most of these early Christians were Jews, they were no longer accepted in the Jewish community. And many of them had been ostracized by family. I think it's important for us to acknowledge that we are a church today. We are the body of Christ because of the witness of those first century Christians. And the Christians that followed them too, who also witnessed to their faith in the most difficult of circumstances. And it seems to me that Luke is encouraging those who are living in those kinds of times to not give up, to see where God can be present in the midst of the most difficult of times. Many of you are going through dark times right now. Many of you know the difficulty of of very hard issues of health. And, of course, the economy has been hard on many, many people. We have unemployed and many more even underemployed. And then, of course, in our private lives, we have difficulties within our families, estrangements, things that are very tough for us to deal with. And there are times when I think all of us feel that it's all coming unraveled. We are near a catastrophe. And it's at times like that that I think we have to look to our faith. And we have to look for where God might be in the midst of those difficulties. In the book of Romans, Paul writes, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. I have struggled with that passage from time to time, and I know it's intended to be encouraging, and I think it can be encouraging. But we need to keep straight that God doesn't make bad things happen to us in order that God can bring about good. And sometimes I think we hear it that way. But I do truly believe that good can come out of the most difficult and the worst situations in our lives. I've struggled with that passage, as I've said, but I think part of the struggle is because of the questions that I ask when I find myself in a difficult spot. Often the first questions that come to mind are, why me and why now? But the why questions are never able to be answered and ultimately need to be set aside. But there are how questions that are very important. How will God use the situation that I find myself in for the glory of God? How might this situation be a door to a new opportunity, to something that I could never have imagined? But when I realize it, I know that it was better than what I was holding on to so tightly that I thought I could never let go of it. How might this situation be an opportunity for me to present Christ in the world and to live in such a way that fear is not a part of my life, but rather trust in God and what God can do. And ultimately, it is not our faithfulness that really counts, but it's the faithfulness of God, faithfulness in us, 
standing with us, Christ with us in the midst of all of our circumstances. One of my heroes of the faith, as you know, because I've said it many times before, is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I think of him so often because here was a theologian who had to live his theology. He was a pacifist, but yet he was a part of the plot to uh, to kill Hitler. And he's often said that he thought that that was sin, that he was involved in that. But it was the least of bad choices. He eventually was put in prison when the plot was uh, was unraveled and and the, the authorities understood what was going on. And perhaps it was in prison that Bonhoeffer's witness was the greatest because he was such a witness to his life in Christ that his jailers helped him get his letters and papers out of prison. And today you can read those in his book, Letters and Papers from Prison. And it's a wonderful uh, image of who this person Bonhoeffer was. But there are other accounts, prisoners who were there with him, the the prayer groups that he led, and how he was so steadfast in being present as Christ in their midst. Each one of us is called to be Christ in the midst of the turmoil of our lives and the turmoil of other people's lives. Each of us must remember that we are called to a higher calling and not to give in to the fear but to remember that God is with us. Christ is with us. So when the tornadoes of life come your way, even those two mile wide F5s, you can know that on the other side, there can be something even better. Amen.